Welcome to Rethink, the Financial Advisor Podcast. My name is Adam Holtz. And this is Derek Notman. We are your hosts, both veteran advisors and fintech CEOs who challenge the status quo, question everything, and have fun doing it. Hear honest commentary on the challenges facing advisors today. And be part of a community where we can all rethink the profession. Now on to our episode. Derek, did you niche early on to grow your practice? Adam, that really brings back some <laughs> unpleasant memories <laughs> of my early career as an advisor. Um, it was, it was, re- what do you mean? Your early memories were bad or? Well, <laughs> it being an advisor, especially in the first couple of years, is really, really hard. Yep. And really stressful, uncertain paychecks crazy hours. I mean, we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. And so t- we've talked so much about niching and I do believe it's important, but if I reflect upon my early years as an advisor, I had tremendous growth. I grew like crazy exponentially over my first three, four or five years. And looking back, I didn't niche at all. Huh. I, I was working with anybody that would fog a mirror and then would ask for a ton of referrals. I was persistent. I would do anything anywhere. I would drive three hours to write a $10 a month term policy. I would do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So no, I didn't niche. And it's interesting because it did lead to some growth, but then I got tired of driving three hours for a $10 checko, as we call them. I, I I wanted to be able to become more laser focused and have more time and all that. So it's an interesting question. How about yeah. you? Did, did you? You know, of course not. I, I worked with all humans, whether they had a paycheck or not, whether they had a <laughs> rollover or not. I did all lines of business, mutual funds, annuities, life insurance, yeah. Yeah. all that stuff, right? That was how we, that's how we compensated ourselves. The only niche I would think that I adopted was basically planning first in every engagement, I would use some form of needs-based analysis to justify because I was not a good salesperson. I could not just walk in and sell. I did not have exponential growth. I did not see exponential growth in my business until year number eight. I survived. I barely survived. In fact, the first year I remember I made $11,000 my first year in 1998. Amazing. I was living at home. I was paying my mom rent, which was not easy at 11000 Good for her for charging um, you, though. Yes, I know. That was her life lesson. Thanks, mom. <laughs> uh, I couldn't didn't have enough money to go out, so I had to stay at home. <laughs> but of course, if focus, you know, I was motivated, right? Get to work. Uh, I made a little bit of money my second year, but it really was, it was really because I focused so much on planning and I had really long sales cycles, but definitely no niching. But here's the irony of this question, Derek. Everyone is talking about how you need to find your niche. Who are they talking to? You and I are included in that batch of everyone telling people to niche. I know. We've said it plenty of times. And I would say, and I hope I'm not contradicting something I said in the past here, <laughs> which I, I'm good at doing that. I do it to not my like it's recorded or anything. <laughs> but yeah, but, but I, I would say if you're, I mean, early on, first couple of years, I would say don't listen to the whole niching advice as much. However, 
Mm-hmm. Keep it on your radar because it is eventually a place you're going to end up or, or will want to end up most advisors that do. So yeah, I, I would say that we don't want a six month advisor to be worried about niching right now. They, they don't have that luxury. It's true. There's so much conversation in the business around going directly to fee-based, going right to financial planning. Early advisors really have not built the credibility yet. How do you know what niche you want to be? Unless you came from a specific market, this is a second career. Yeah, Maybe you were a pharmaceutical or a physician, or you were worked in construction, or you were a business owner. You know, I can see how generally your marketplace is going to be mindful of who you know, and that's probably where you're going to start. But it very much our early businesses kind of get put together scrappily based upon who's willing to do business with us in the early years. Uh, But this came up in a conversation with Angie Herbers. And if you don't know Angie, she's incredibly well-known and she's been involved for 20 years in our space. And I've run into her a couple of times and the people that work for her, she's uh, consulted thousands of firms, different sizes. So she's all across the board and her team, very high end in terms of their guidance and their research around what's working today. And she said something in a conversation with Derek and I that just got us thinking. And I I really, I hope that everybody gets to listen to this speed rethink tank interview with Angie Herbers. Are you ready, Derek? Yeah, let's do it. She totally embodies the rethink mentality here. So definitely pay attention folks as you're listening to this awesome conversation. Thank you, Angie. It's great to actually have you on this podcast. You know, Derek and I have seen you over the past 20 years since we've been in the business, working with advisors, literally thousands of advisors now, in helping them grow their practice and address the real pain points as a consultant. So thank you so much for being here. And we wanted to ask you, what's your perspective of the financial advice market today? Well, that's an interesting question because the great benefit of our perspective at Herbers and Company is, is that we get to be in leadership rooms and strategy rooms long before trends actually happen. We're seeing this, the trend in real time and then the industry sees it three years later. My biggest concern right now is um, what's going to happen when consumers don't want all their money managed at one firm. So what we're seeing today is you know, just focusing on consumer and consumer behavior. They're saying, why do I need just one financial advisor? Why can't I have several financial advisors? Why can't I have some of my money at one firm and some of my money at another firm? Um, We're starting to see a major trend toward firms working together on one client, firms specializing in areas and clients not having all their assets in one place. So it's exciting to see this development happen. Along those lines, then, Angie, it sounds like you guys are way ahead of the curve in what, what changes are coming or, you know, down the road for all of us. So what is, is there a missing opportunity or some type of challenge that's coming up for advisors because of what you're seeing? It sounds like your crystal ball works a little bit better than the rest of us. Well, yes. I mean, The independent advisory industry is growing very rapidly. Potential clients now understand what the industry provides and what the industry is starting to tap into is the do-it-yourself investor. So how do you allow a client to, to some degree, do it themselves, manage their own money, but help them with advice when they need it and allow also those clients to get differing perspectives from other financial advisors? That is a 
that is an almost an entirely complete shift to how we've seen financial advice in the past. Financial advice in the past is you go to one advisor, you put all your assets at that one advisor, you get all your advice from that one advisor. I think in the next you know decade, we're going to see the industry scatter a bit. In other words, consumers, the do-it-yourself consumers are going to come to the industry and say, we want a piece of you know, a lot of different firms. We don't need everything at one firm. And that's a different business model, different way to do things. Do you think that it's because the consumer is getting different contextual advice or expertise? Is it is the argument that they're getting investment, insurance, tax, legal from different sources and they want them to collaborate? Or is it that they're getting investment advice from two separate entities in this model? I think it's both investment advice and financial planning advice from two separate entities. I mean, you've got one firm that has one investment philosophy and another firm that has another investment philosophy. How does the consumer know which investment philosophy is the best? So you test them both out. You have part of your assets at one firm, part of your assets at another firm. You get financial advice from one advisor. You go to another advisor, you get a second opinion. You go to another advisor, you get a third opinion. You diversify your financial advisors. That's what the future is. That's profound. I don't know how I think about it yet, but I'm definitely going to rethink my whole perspective on that. Assuming that's correct, though, Angie, assuming that that is the direction that we're headed, what would be some action steps for advisors listening today be like, oh, that could disrupt the heck out of my business. So what, what are some things, maybe, I don't know, top two, top three things that advisors could do today to start getting ahead of that curve so they're ready for it and ready for that fractional advice, if you will, versus where they are today? Well, that gets us into trends of today. Biggest trend today is a talent trend. And no longer are we seeing journalists, financial advisors. We are now seeing specialists. So you may know how to do a comprehensive financial plan, but you might be the insurance specialist, or you might be the investment specialist, or you might be the education specialist, or you might be the retirement small business owners. So within each firm, they're going to have specialists in the future, and that's going to be um, dependent upon talent. Biggest trend that we're seeing right now is in talent. Talent, financial advisor talent used to generalist financial advisors. And while there are components, you know, that are needed for you to be a financial advisor, we're starting to see firms move toward more specialist advisors. And that is the big, you know, that is how we're going to accommodate this getting advice in multiple places versus getting all of my advice at one firm. So the big issue is how do you build the best or the best specialist. That's really great. So is there, I'm really curious, Angie, given the amount of consulting you're doing and being in these back rooms and talking about what's happening next before it's published, certainly, is there anything that you think that our community needs to hear? Yeah, I'm just going to warn you, this is a very controversial topic. I probably get a lot of backlash from it, but I don't believe that advisory firms to grow should should niche out right now. Um, and, and I can back that up. So along the growth track, 
what we're seeing in the industry studies is that the niche is what drives the growth. But if you're very deep into that, and that's you know what Herbers and Company does, we get very deep into organic growth. We figure out how those firms can oftentimes grow faster. What we've learned is that the startups don't actually grow by the niche. They grow by cutting price. So they start, they have a lower price or even some free service that they offer. They gather clients as they grow along. Then they start to see, you know, one client referring another client and referring another client. The niche develops and then they raise the price. So the the niche is actually the lagging indicator, not the leading indicator. The leading indicator is price. They're competing on price. Um, firms, we don't see firms grow specifically on the niche or focusing on the niche. We see them grow the fastest when they compete on price. And then once they get bigger, they raise those prices and they just happen to have a niche. That's really interesting. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I I almost feel, Derek, I almost feel like we have to ask more questions here. Angie, can you drill down a little bit more on that? Because you're going to blow up a lot of people's minds when they hear this statement. (laughs) I know. I'm going to get a lot of hate mail. (laughs) I don't know about the hate mail, but like, like, wait, what are you doing, Angie? Even Adam and I ourselves have talked about niching. So like, this is definitely against the grain and I want to know more. Yeah. I mean, the question I have is just to, just to summarize what I think you said, but you're saying that when you're growing a practice, especially in the early days, and maybe that's the nuance here in the early days of growing a practice, your goal is to grab market share. The best way to grab market share potentially is to compete well on price to value. Correct. And by doing so, you will attract more of the potential market share. And then as you get large and you're looking for efficiencies, you can afford, let's say, a Pareto principle where you go to 80-20. And that's when you start either raising prices and by nature of that, cutting those that won't stay with you because the value proposition is not there. Yeah. Well, it, your, your business goal has a lot to play into it, this, but let's just say you're a startup out there and every marketer out there is saying, pick an edge. Well, that's not how it actually happens. How firms are growing the fastest is they're competing on price. Go back 20 years and think about the independent advisory industry 20 years ago. 20 years ago, everybody offered free financial planning. It was the loss leader, right? And then as the independent advisory um, industry grew, they started to charge for financial planning. Nobody was talking about niches as much as we talk about them today 20 years ago they were talking about offering free financial planning they were competing on price the same things happen today if you're a startup out there and you really want to grow quickly let's just say you want to get 100 clients then cut the price in half you cut the price of investment management or the flat fee that people are paying which is what most startups do they cut the price And then they get up to 100 clients. Those 100 clients start referring clients that happen to be the same type of client that they're working with. So let's just say they have five teachers and then all of a sudden they have now 10 teachers and 20 teachers and 30 teachers because they cut the price in the very beginning and all of a sudden they have a niche. So then you get even bigger. 
So let's just say your goal is growth. If your goal is growth, you would never cut the bottom, you know, unprofitable clients because those are potentially your future cash flow. You would just serve them unprofitably. So you start to grow and you start to grow and you continue to add clients and you continue to add clients. Well, naturally, you're going to add clients who are referring other clients who are just like them and a niche develops. So then everybody talks about, oh, it's the niche that grew us. No, it wasn't. It was the free financial planning that grew you. It's the cutting the price in the very beginning that grew you. It's the referrals that grew you. It's not the niche. So if you want to grow fast, just cut your price and then raise your price later after your niche is developed. Such an interesting take on growing an advisory business. It's it is, almost yeah. like that that first hundred clients or whatever. It's like you're bootstrapping. It's your start capital. It's you're willing to make less now, knowing you're going for that hockey stick approach later. The hockey stick approach works so long as you do it correctly. And focusing on the niche is the a lagging indicator, which everybody thinks it's the leading indicator. It's not the leading indicator. If you get deep into those firms who are growing the fastest, look at all the big firms out there that got over the last 15 years. They were doing one thing for free and they were cutting their prices in the very beginning. And it's still true today. So the whole niche argument only comes after you're an established firm and your growth rate slows down. Well, your growth rate probably slowed down because you raised prices too fast. Is it that you've lowered the price or that you've increased the value relative to the traditional, let's say, market price? Because in my own practice, we delivered financial planning for free, like you said, and we grew enormously. But, but it was because of the planning process that we argued we uncovered more assets. So we gathered more assets per customer, thereby justifying, like you said, a loss leader, that the planning was actually a fantastic sales process. We didn't actually wind up charging for financial planning at all because it wound up being actually a detriment to our growth, right? Right. If you start to charge for it in some cases, now this is not every case, but in, in some, some cases, cases yeah. depending on the client, if you start to charge for it, then you're weeding out the number of clients that you, you can potentially attract. And at that point, probably be a good idea to start niching. Right. So you're saying that niching is something you do once you already have the base. That's really the important well, part. Well, right? niching is something you do when you have a growth problem in the industry. But if you truly want to grow, then generally it has something to do with price or a free service or a loss leader or some specialty in service. It's not you know, finding pilots or finding just people who want equity planning or finding only teachers. If you want to give your firm a shot of steroids, then start offering something of great value free, put a loss leader in place, or cut your price for a certain segment of clients and get your future cash flows. You get a lot of clients coming in maybe at you know, maybe not profitable, but you get a lot of clients coming in who start to generate a lot of referrals. And then those referrals then create the profitability later on. It all compounds. Just let the compounding happen. But too many people focus on, let me go find a niche and just focus on that niche. Could it be said that an advisor should never niche? 
Well, I would never say never. <laughs> I mean, if an advisor says, I only want to work with teachers because I really love teachers and they get underserved, then I'm going to say we should definitely niche on teachers. But if you want to have growth and it, a sustainable, consistent growth rate, then I wouldn't focus solely on teachers because financial advice can be applied to every single consumer in the U.S. One needs a financial plan. You can do the financial plan for everyone. So by niching out, in some cases, it can hurt you. But if your goal is fast growth, find the service that really defines you, offer it for free, and in the future, you will gain future cash flows. Or if you're just starting out, just start out on a lower price. It's no different than attorneys. It's no different than accountants. When attorneys start out, they aren't charging $800 an hour. They're charging, you know, I'm guessing, but they're charging $200 an hour. And as they get better and better and better, they increase their price over time. And then the profitability starts to compound after they start to get a lot of referrals. Got it. Yeah, I see you're buying the future business. I think the comment yeah. about saying, I can work with competitors. I'm really curious about the collaboration. It's funny, both Derek and I are working on tech projects that actually address that specifically because we didn't really see anybody else talking about this. What's cool, Adam, what, you, what you're making me realize is what you just said about asset map and couplers doing the same thing is that Something you said earlier, Angie, made me question like, well, who's going to be the quarterback? Normally it was the life insurance agent or it was the CFP who was the quarterback of yeah. the client's financial situation. Why not make the client the quarterback? That's who it should have always been. I love that she threw that in at the very end because we are starting to see that trend and that wrapped it up. The client should always have been the quarterback, but... They well, haven't for, been empowered for that one. Yeah. They haven't. And I, that's, we've, we've mentioned this in previous episodes, the access to information now because of the internet and, and whatnot is so great and so transparent that mm -hmm. they are empowered to be the quarterback and they should be, it's their money. It's not ours. That's right. Um, so we should be helping them. It's a service business. I love that conversation. I've got some, some great thoughts. And you know, the thing that strikes me, Adam, so I mean, like you, I've got a couple things going on <laughs> and I've heard, um, I still have my RIA and even on my website, I am not accepting new clients, but if I wanted to jumpstart the next level of growth for my firm, I would seriously consider what Angie is talking about and just discount my pricing or offer some type of free thing to just get it to rock and roll. If that's, I don't have the time for that. I'm not going to do that. If there's an advisor listening that wants to do that for me, <laughs> reach out. <laughs> there you go. Um, but that's, I just don't have that capacity at this point, but just re it's refreshing to hear the other side. What's your impression? What are your thoughts? You know, I'm all over the board on this one. I, I have written down several things that I do want to share, but on your comments alone, I think why we originally responded to this thinking, what? Like really? And why she even said that she was going to get hate mail is because <laughs> the audience of financial advisors out there are those of us who have survived past those early years. And 
as a result, the audience is a bit mature, right? So most of us have been in the business 10, 15, 20 or years or more. We've created some level of success. We have the luxury of being able to niche and we do so because we want to create more lifestyle, not more revenue per se. We want to create more intentionality of that ideal customer. We want to work with certain people that we like, and we only want to add two, three, four high value clients a year. And we don't want to get overwhelmed. So we're not trying to do the, you know, the Kmart special where we're basically going to get into a hundred new people, somewhat profitable or not. But here's the interesting thing. When I rethought about this and listened to it again, I heard what you said, which was, this is what startup companies do all the time. We go and get market share first, make them a client first and go do it. But the reticence towards it is that most advisors, I don't think really want to grow like a hockey stick. They want to grow more intentionally. But the misnomer here is that they should be bringing on the next generation and enabling them to go grow like a hockey stick and take their firm as a group, if you feel like you have a succession plan, to the next level. That's where I really think this has a lot of merit for all you experienced advisors who are thinking, yeah, it's kind of not me. I'm already niched. You know, that's interesting. So even if you are an established advisor and, and you've been thinking, oh, I'm only going to grow selectively, why not grow with Angie's model, but bring on some advisors to take on that business? That's right. It solves a succession planning situation, potentially. It helps you grow. You're going to get a piece of that business anyways. Yep. Um, it's a really interesting way to do it. As long as you're providing that massive value. Heck, even my comment about my own firm, like that, that would work. Mm -hmm. I could see that. That's, that's a really interesting point. Um, this is why established advisors should care just as much about this as if you're six months in. Yeah. Well, it's an intentional decision. There were some other things that I thought were, were really curious. You know, we recently dealt with, I got asked by a family member to help one of their friends. So I did a preview of, okay, I'm sure I'll help you. I'll direct you where you need to go as a financial planner. Uh, and he says, yeah, I have money with two other companies and I'm looking for a third. And I'm thinking to myself, huh, why does he want a third investment manager? And it really validated why Mm -hmm. But Angie said, people are looking for diversity of their advisors. The challenge is there's been very little cohesion between those advisors. So it's not like I can call the other advisors and find out right. what they're doing. They don't want to talk to me. I'm, a, I'm the enemy, right? Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm the enemy of their AUM gathering. And at the same time, one advisor is typically left coordinating and there's very little facility to do this. It's one of the things you and I are trying to fix in the business, but I think it was interesting, this talent gap comment that, that a lot of consumers are looking for different specialty talent. They need to just pull them together and create a dream team. How do they do this? Or they want to work with a financial advisor who already has multiple skills on the bench. Yeah, definitely. Hence the quarterback thing. Bring in the specialists for the life insurance, for the AUM, for the financial planning. Mm -hmm. And darn it all, they better all be talking to each other. Very um, true. So whether they do it themselves or they find a firm that's already done it, it's happening. I mean, that, that's exactly what she's saying. It, it is happening. What were takeaways for you? What do you really think was salient for everybody out there? Well, what we just talked about, definitely. I do think that that's what's happening more so. And, and people want specialists because they want specific answers to their specific problems. It's that simple. So that makes sense. I liked her price is a leading indicator comments. 
Mm -hmm. Listen to the market. It's going to tell you what it wants, what it likes or what it doesn't like. So if you can just get in by price and free and all that type of stuff, you'll learn. So I like the comparison to the startup model quite a bit. And as I said before, if I were going to jumpstart my RIA to the next level for my firm, I probably wouldn't do it myself. I'd be in, involved in the conversations, but having advisors look at, all right, we're going to do this for free for the next year or mm -hmm. drop our prices by this for, for whatever, knowing we're going to increase. Yeah. Uh, just a really interesting way to think about it. I just wish I had more time because if I did have more time, I would do it. But that's the whole point, isn't it? That's why it's so unappealing to established advisors. They're not trying to go crazy working all night long. You know, they value their their home time, their golf time, their oh, right? work life balance is important. I guess you bring in more people, right? You that's, bring that's in people to do it, right? So I think price is a volume argument, right? You lower the price, you're going to just increase demand, right? And so that means you got to have the capacity to handle the demand. Otherwise, you're not going to even capture it. You're going to wind up being unbelievably unprofitable. Her argument is that, well, you'll just, if you do a good job, you'll accumulate referrals. You'll just get so much yeah. flow. You're probably going to have to grow and expand your team to, to handle it. So I think what's really coming out of this is I'm hearing expand your team so that you have the specialty parties to handle it. That's the first part. Invest in team. And if you're really talking that you want to grow, you want to have a hockey stick, Go compete on price or value, right? Deliver value to the biggest population as possible. And don't limit yourself by thinking I can only work with physicians in my local region that are left-handed tennis players. Like I, I <laughs> there's a couple of them out there maybe. So that's what she's saying. And I think that's, it's a really good recognition because I think most of us have gotten stuck on, I only want to niche at all costs. And that's the only way to move forward. And it isn't. And it's okay to to do what she's suggesting. The niche will reveal itself. And then you can slow down at some point because you're at the place you want to be. Maybe you only want to be a single advisor shop. That's cool. But if you're looking to jumpstart that growth, you're six, 12 months in and you're just frustrated because your project 200 has gone and uh, you know, you're tired of knocking on doors. Maybe there's a better way you can do this. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting thing because what I didn't understand the beginning of first hearing this is that Price is a commentary on value. We always did financial planning as the loss leader to, yeah. to earn our credibility and our trust. We always did financial planning so that it was not a barrier to say, you had to pay me $3,000 just for me to do the due diligence that I need to do anyway to give you suitable recommendations. So I'm going to do financial planning for free. We tried to do fee-based financial planning for many years. It really didn't work well for us. And we still, to this day at our firm, we do free financial planning if we decide that we want to take you on. Of course, we used Asset Map to screen. So we know in the first 15 minutes whether this is going to be profitable or whether yeah. this is just pro bono work, right? But that, that's there. Sometimes we choose to do that because of the relationship or the who would prefer it because we want to do that and we want to serve. But most of the time, we use still financial screening to figure out whether which team members we need to bring to the conversation. Is this a deep analysis or is this triage? And I think that that's, that's an important aspect. You know, I'm curious to kind of wrap this up. We had some very interesting guests the last couple of times. If you remember, Rich Campy said almost a contradictory thing here. He said, only spend time with ideal clients and get six favorable introductions per year. But- what do you think about that? Well, if you are 10, 20 years in mm -hmm. and you have that luxury 
and you only want to grow strategically with a lot of AUM and very few clients, I think his model is brilliant. And we know for a fact it works. It's worked really well for a lot of, of high producing advisors. I think advisors six months in, even three years in, mm-hmm. would struggle tremendously with that model. Not saying it couldn't work, but I think it would be a much harder road early on to do that. Because mm-hmm. essentially what, what he's saying, or I'm saying it for him, <laughs> is that we're going to eliminate 90% of the people you can work with right off the bat. Yep. And if I put my startup cap on for a second and you tell me I'm going to eliminate 90% of the people you can sell to, I'm freaking out. Like, no, that's not cool. We're going to go sell to everybody to get revenue in the door, keep the lights on, yeah. you know, keep buying my ramen noodles. And then eventually I can go do that. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, so I, I think Rich is brilliant and I think it works really, really well at a certain level. But to, to contrast that a little bit, what, what did Libby tell us? I think that was, ep- so Rich was episode 36, I believe. Libby was right. 38. That's right. Libby said, I, I don't want to say it was the opposite of this, but it, it was a compliment. She said, don't ask for referrals because it's creepy. Rather earn them through your intentional referral programs or how you deliver advice or guidance, whatever it is that you do. And I think this is interesting because it addressed the, oh, I'm too scared to ask for referrals, so I'm just not going to ask and you don't do anything. Her argument is find an alternative that still feels comfortable through programs, through innuendo, through connotating that you have referral programs. So, so you're planting the seeds out there. And of course, it's just all on delivery. What did you think about that in contrast to Rich? I really liked it. I think you you could grow maybe a little bit faster as far as volume of clients versus Rich's model. Um, but I would say for you know Libby's model, you're maybe probably not as established as an advisor that Rich is, is referring mm. to. Um, you've made it past the first three to five years. You cut your teeth. You've got a little bit of recurring revenue. You know, you're okay. So now mm-hmm. you want to you want to flip the model on referrals a little bit. Um, so again, it can work really well. I like I like her inbound methodology and how they just make it made it a warm environment to be referable. So Adam, if I'm an advisor, right? I've li- I've listened to now these three different episodes. They contradict each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and they don't at the same time. If they you don't. You know, I, for me, I think the number one takeaway is figure out where you are as an advisor with your practice mm-hmm. and then latch on to one of these models that makes the most sense for where you are and where you want to go. Because they all will work. That's that's what's cool. It just depends on who you are as, as an advisor and where you want to go. I totally agree. I, I mean, all three of these growth strategies from very respected, successful People, very successful people. Very successful. And it's interesting because Rich tends to work with the highest producers in the nation, right? The the people who have achieved the pinnacle level of their profession that are hiring a coach at thousands of dollars a month, okay? They're, they're Jordans, okay? So they're clearly going to focus on, I'm only going to spend my time with 10 clients. That's it, really. Not even 80-20. We're talking 595 in terms of ratio of where they're spending their time. Um, Libby is really focusing, I think, in that, you know, how do you transition from knowing that referrals is still going to be your best customer, but not having to be awkward about it and not saying, hey, like, what's in it for me? And I think Angie's argument is really actually, and I re- appreciate this, focusing on, again, the basics, 
really growth models of a company, not just what we tend to talk about anecdotally in our business. Oh, you got to get to referrals. You got a niche, you got to, right. You're trying to get to this ascendancy of acting like the rich campy style advisor. What got you here has been likely an absolute commitment to helping people, taking people on and growing the customer base. And then you earn the luxury to do this intentionality of business design. And I think that so many advisors are getting a little bit, I don't want to say misled, but maybe miscued to say niche super early. I think you're right there. Don't do it too early. And struggle, (laughs) right? Unless you already come from a professional. Let's say you were an attorney or a CPA. Yeah. You have credibility. Okay. You you know, I remember when we started, people like, why should I trust you? You've been in the business for two, three, four years. Why am I going to trust you with my life savings? Right. You, You had to have a pretty good argument or a good salesperson deliver value for free. And I, and I, ironically, just to close out the moment, which I mentioned a couple of, a couple of episodes that was, that was the breakout moment for my career is when I offered a prospect mm-hmm. financial planning for free because her other two advisors have never done any financial planning. They only did asset management. And I did that. And that's what earned me the opportunity to do the business that, that catapulted my entire business because I gave it for free. So when we just don't talk about price here, Sometimes we can give value to people that other people would charge for and for they, free. Yeah. and they'll be open to it. I'm happy to take something for free. Right. Right. You just got a free scooter, right? You took it. Okay. I did. It. Yeah. <laughs> right. They've listened to us dribble on long enough today, my friend. So let's, let's wrap this up. What should people do now? Well, certainly if you haven't already, you got to subscribe to the podcast and whatever subscription service you're using. Remember to leave us a review. Reviews really matter as we're learning in this podcast game. So if you have the opportunity to give us a five-star review, that's awesome. If we you're only not, accept you, five stars. That's right. Thankfully, the, the system's broken for anything <laughs> for five stars. So we were, we're kind of black and white on that one. But no, obviously you have control. <laughs> um, but we appreciate, obviously, your support. So uh, thank you, everybody who's following us. And remember to share this. Hopefully this is valuable to you in our mentorship podcast. We've kept it non-commercial. Uh, so that you can hopefully learn. and But we'd love to hear what you're doing. So please take some actions as a result of this. Tell us what you're doing. Use this LinkedIn, email us, whatever you're going to do. Make sure you, you join the conversation. Thanks everybody for listening. Make it an awesome rest of your day, night, weekend, wherever the heck you are listening. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Derek. Thank you for listening to Rethink, the financial advisor podcast with Holt and Notman. Be sure to subscribe now and join the ongoing conversation. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Asset Map or Connector. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.